Welcome back to Deep Dives into the Bible, where we take our time and go deeply into God's Word. I'm Father Michael Nasser from St. Nicholas Orthodox Church here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And today we're going to focus on Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12, which is episode 66 in our discussion on the Gospel of Matthew. We are here with members of our St. Nicholas family and happy you've joined us. So let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lowest mankind to the pure light of the divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our minds to the understanding of the gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well pleasing unto thee. Thou art our illumination, our soul and body of Christ our God, and he who strive glory, Together, the Father is everlasting, then all holy, good, and life giving spirit, now and ever to the ages of ages. Amen. Got our hum back. All right. It is this way. Oh, it's gone now. All right. Magic. So I, before we get into Matthew 16, I wanted to make an introductory comment about where we are liturgically, because in many ways, our liturgical cycle and our celebrations are biblical, um, and there's not like a biblical version, a liturgical version of faith. It's all one thing, and I think we, we can benefit from seeing the, the overlap and seeing the the these not just similarity, but really the, the identification of one with the other. So last Sunday was the Sunday of the cross, and liturgically, we keep the cross in the middle of the church uh, for the services so that we can keep <clears throat> Jesus's message, his way, his death and resurrection, and the way he calls us to center <clears throat> for this whole week at, at the midpoint of, of Great Lent. So I just wanted to bring that up, that the cross really is at the core of the Christian message and reality and calling for Christians. So not just today, but today, especially, and then going forward, think about that. Think about how what we focus on, what we meditate on in our liturgical celebrations um, really is mirroring what we read in the scriptures and, and vice versa. I think it'll be a just it's another way of seeing the same reality. Sometimes when you see the same thing from two different points of view, it really can help reinforce um, both of them. So I think it's a benefit we want to take advantage of. All right, so here we go into Matthew 16. We're going to bite off a big chunk because there's a whole hole that we want to uh, uh, look at carefully. So would somebody volunteer to read for us verses 1 through 12? Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky but you cannot discern the signs of the times. 
A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said, Take a heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O ye of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? <clears throat> nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the heaven of the Pharisees, of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the doc doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay. Um, there are a couple things that Jesus is doing here that they're not necessarily, well, and one, one is a play on words, and one is really looking at one level of understanding. He's trying to call them to a different level. Um, the biblical word in Greek for heaven, have you ever heard anybody translate um, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in the heavens? Have you ever heard that translation? So that's that's one of the common one uh, ones you hear. Not common. It's uh, not common, but it is a one you hear because the word in Greek for what we would say in English, heaven, with an idea of a very specific spiritual place, it's above. It's the same word as the word for the skies. So more literal translators will say, "Our Father who art in the heavens," because the word is a plural word. And there really is no distinguish in the original language between what we think of as heaven, even the capital H heaven, and the skies or the heavens. We say the heavens meaning the skies too, but when we talk about heaven, we have a different understanding. So here what Jesus is doing is this, the Pharisees and Sadducees come to test him and ask him to show them a sign from heaven. All right, meaning a sign from this spiritual world that he's been talking about, this kingdom he's been talking about, and they want to see a sign. What is his answer about? Which version of heaven or the heavens does he go to? The heavens. The heavens, right? The skies. Yeah. So... In a sense, I, obviously, I think he knew that they were talking about heaven, meaning this kingdom of heaven that he's been preaching about. But he uses the opportunity of saying, you want to hear about the heavens? You can't even tell about the skies, right? Here you are, you, you, you know about the skies. Why can't you see what is the sign from heaven? All right, he says, uh, when it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it'll be stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the, inter the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. 
What are signs of the times? That's a unique phrase. What does that mean? <clears throat> In the study note, Father, it says that, uh, that everyone agreed that when Messiah comes, the time that Messiah comes, that he would be accompanied by signs and wonders and miraculous happenings that would help to validate that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And so I think what he's saying here is you cannot discern the signs of the times. The signs of the times are that which the law and that which the prophets had pointed to concerning Messiah are here with you, but you can't read it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Um, think about signs in general. If I say to you sign, what picture comes up in your mind? Stop sign. Stop sign. All right. What does a stop sign do? What's the function of a stop sign? It gives you direction, instruction. Yeah, it takes a principle, which is when you get to this corner, stop your vehicle before you proceed, and it communicates it, right? It takes something which is really hard to put into words, but that picture, we all know it instinctually. Do you stop? Of course you stop. It says stop. Um, reminds me of a story once we had a visitor to us in Mexico, and we got to a corner, and the sign was an eight-sided red sign that said alto and the that visitor said, said what does alto mean <laughs> well what do you think it means right um that's not reading the signs right so yeah. a sign communicates a reality in a in a very specific way so he's saying them how is it you can interpret the sky but you can't interpret the signs meaning the pointers the messages of the times or of what's happening of what's what's uh, you know what is the, what is crucial in this in this period so in a sense they're testing him and he's going to do this over and over again watch how he does it which is one of his they're going to be so upset he doesn't ignore their questions but he answers them often with a question or with a statement back saying you want to see a sign from me you can't tell the the sign that you want a sign from heaven, you can't tell the sign about the heavens, or you can tell it. Why can't you tell the signs of the times? And then now he's going to get, um, I think probably for one of the first times, very directly um, an accusation that they're going to just keep coming at him. And he's going to keep saying very direct things um, that are ultimately going to lead towards uh, them wanting to get rid of him. So he calls them evil and adulterous. Mm -hmm. Let's look at each of those. What's, what is evil? When you think of something or someone that is evil. Oh, I think of sinfulness. Okay. It's wrongness. It's against what God wants. Mm -hmm. The Orthodox okay. Study Bible uses the term wicked. Okay. Wicked and adulterous. Mine does uh, too, Alan. Okay. So that idea of, of badness, of wrongness, of not what God wants. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the original and see which word it is. I to do that. Um, evil, if it's a direct translation, let's see. Uh, okay, yeah. Bonera is, is evil. So the same, like when we say... Um, and deliver us from evil. It's that same word, ponedu. It's 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 evil. Um, 
And evil is very interesting. It's, it is that sort of badness. It's wickedness. But the ones who are considered the evil ones, namely the demons, have a, another word that's associated with them, which is diablo. Yeah. Right? Which is in Greek, also you hear it in Spanish, the diablo. That's, that's a, a more specific version of evil, which is um, the one who separates. So via is through, bowl is, is to stand or to move. So you stand or you, you cut through something, you separate. So the evil one is the one who separates and he separates what? Good from the bad, good from the wicked, good from the evil. So that's evil. What's adulterous? Well, if you're not faithful, you're an adulterer. Right. And what, what, if somebody commits adultery, they have taken what was due to the one they were committed to, mm -hmm. and they've engaged in activities with another, right? Yep. And this is really going to be the chief sin. Actually, you see it throughout the whole Bible from, from beginning to end. Uh, adultery, not the sexual act of adultery. Why, why, one of the reasons why that's considered so bad is it's an image of our spiritual adultery which is we should be faithful to God, the one we've promised ourselves to. And then we act towards the, we give our, our loyalty, we give our commitment to another. And that's what's really a, a very powerful accusation that he says, because they've asked for a sign, right? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So by seeking for a sign, what is he saying about them by calling them evil and adulterous. And these are religious leaders, by the way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I wonder if, if Jesus, you know, to the extent that he takes offense or takes affront, you know, I wonder if he doesn't really want to be that, and forgive the choice of my words but you know the carnival monkey the show monkey that performs upon demand you know sure. um with the grinder the music yeah. grinder and so yeah. on nice. I, nice. I i think that he doesn't want and i'm i could be so wrong father on this but he's really more disappointed when somebody wants a sign <laughs> even though i know subdeacon nicholas mentioned that we speak of those signs in revelation when in the second coming and so on, we'll know because they help us. But yeah. I just, I just think he it puts him off and tells no, him to have right. little faith. That's I what the right. Orthodox be, uh, Study Bible says. The footnote. What's that? The footnote in the Orthodox Study Bible says that exact thing. What really, did it say, Sam? Because a sign is never given to those whose motives is to test God. Okay, so. I think, uh, Susie, I think you're right on, but I think because he's given us good information here, it's not just like, don't make a side so uh, freak out of me. Right. Um, it's, he's specific about what he doesn't, what he thinks they're doing when they ask for a sign, which is really kind of, it's very uh, surprising, right? By asking for a sign from heaven, what do they want? Or I should say this, who do they want him to call into action, supposedly, by asking for a sign from heaven? 
Well, the, their whole mission was to trick him and, and to try to prove him as a false messiah. So they weren't they weren't really trying to find out, is this truly the messiah? Is this truly the one? They were trying to find out how can we trap this guy? Exactly. All right. And by asking, by trying to trap him, by asking for a sign from heaven, it sounds like they want God to act, right? Who who does signs from heaven? God does signs from heaven. Uh-huh. So by asking for a sign from heaven, and then he turns around and says, by asking for that, you are showing yourselves to be an evil and adulterous generation. It really is a cutting to the heart of what his accusation is going to be. Because, again, these are the religious leaders. And he's saying, you're acting like you want a sign from heaven. You're being adulterous. Yeah. Meaning, you don't want a sign from heaven. You want something beyond and someone beyond God. Right. Because right? they're related to with God. And he's saying, by asking for a sign from heaven, you're actually adulterous. They see the signs in the sky of the weather and can predict what's going to happen. But yet, the signs that they've received from Christ over the years or months, um, they don't see those as a sign from heaven. Right. Exactly. Right. Because when John the Baptist asked, are you the one? Jesus said, go and tell John the things you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them, which is which is the sign they should be looking for. Yes. Yeah. And that's, by the way, it's a side point, but I want to make it again. It's so easy to misinterpret why Jesus does what he does, especially with his miracles of healing. Here we know why he's doing it. They are a sign that this is the one that was promised. That when the Messiah would come, he would do all these things. He would give sight to the blind and all the rest. So, again, we got to let the Bible form us and reform us from our wrong ideas where we might say, well, God healed this person in the Bible. How come he didn't heal me? Hmm. Well, he healed that person in the Bible because that was a sign, not of the fact that he could heal people, but of who he was and the fact he was going to heal us from something much more important than paralysis or blindness or anything else. All right, so by turning and saying to them, you're an even adulterous generation by seeking for a sign. Then he says, no sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Anybody know what that means? Some people, I think, probably already guessed what he's talking about. What was the sign of Jonah? What did Jonah do that was miraculous? Well, he was Get out of the belly and the three world. days yeah. later. Yeah. And then he was, um, so this, he came out. So, exactly. And he was still alive. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. And we'll hear a lot about that. In fact, we're going to read the whole book of Jonah on Holy Saturday morning, God willing, um, because that is a sign of what Jesus will do by his three days in the tomb, like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. You'll hear that a lot in the hymnography Holy Thursday, Holy Friday, and Holy Saturday. Father Michael, when do we. Um believe that uh this happened to jonah oh i mean we're we're talking we're in the you know year 30 to 33 right now how far how long before that was this did this happen 
there, there are a lot of different ideas about that, but probably hundreds, at least hundreds. Yes. This is not like in recent memory. Right. This distant, what we might call mythology. And again, don't misunderstand mythology. Mythology is not what is false. Mythology is what is represented through mythological story. In other words, it's, it doesn't come out necessarily a, a, a history book. Doesn't mean it's any less true. But for them, it would have been so far back. I mean, they had they would have had the scriptures. They would have had the book of Jonah. They were pious Jews. They would have known that. But that's where they would have known it from, the scriptures. So Jonah wrote his own story. Uh, who wrote the stories is another question. Um, we have very modern ideas of authorship that are based much more on uh, sort of our capitalist system of who owns what and who makes what money. Uh, the ancients didn't have the same sensibility. Um, there's all kind of questions about authorship of, of really all the Bible. Um, you know, the first first five books are attributed to whom as the author? Moses. Moses. And yet one of the verses says, and Moses died. Yeah. So, <laughs> Daniel, he didn't write that, right? But, 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 there, it's written yeah. in the third person a lot of times. No, Father? I, I thought so. Well, it could be, but it'd be yeah. hard for him to write. <laughs> a lot of the Gospels wrote it in the third person. Yeah. 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 So, again, we don't, I don't just want us to misunderstand and put our value system and throw it back on the Bible. Um, I'll give you an example. The book of Hebrews nowhere says that uh, I, Paul, am writing this. Oh. It doesn't claim to be written. He doesn't claim whether the author is, doesn't claim to be Paul. Oh. Um, we, by tradition, attribute it to St. Paul. Even liturgically, we say the, the letter of St. Paul to the Hebrews. Mm -hmm. But we don't know. What we do know is definitely in what we would call the Pauline school. And it would be very normal um, in, in ancient times, anything actually anything behind, before modern times, for somebody to put somebody else's name on a piece of literature um, as a way of supporting the, the authority of the scripture, not necessarily the author. So, for example, um, did Matthew write the book of Matthew? We think so. We have no reason to believe he didn't. For us, as Orthodox, we don't need to determine if Matthew wrote it. The book represents the Christian tradition as we had it from the beginning and still have it till now. So Orthodox don't debate authorship as much as modern, typically Protestant biblical scholars who are coming at this from a, from a modern point of view. And they say, well, you know, they might say Hebrews really doesn't show any authorship of Paul, so we're not going to give it a lot of credence. We would say it's not the author, it's what it contains, it's the content. Yeah. So did Jonah write Jonah? We don't know. Um, and for us, it wouldn't, it wouldn't reduce the value of it because it's the content that the church has said it, it, even before the church in old testament times this is authoritative for the instruction of the people it goes into the the canon or the list of books and they would know i mean jesus mentioned the sign of jonah because he knew that they would know and be familiar yes with what the meaning of that was he wouldn't have thrown that out to confuse them or to cause them to, I mean, no. he knew that they knew what the, 
what happened with Jonah, don't yes. you think? Or? Yeah, he knew that. What they don't know is what he knows, which is yeah. there's going to be another thing right. that the that Jonah and the uh, act of Jonah is a sign. So when he says no sign, we give it except the sign of Jonah. In other words, he takes the event of Jonah, which they would see it not as a sign, but as sort of what a sign would point to. It's it's the content. He says what you saw there, Jonah, is a sign. It's going to point to something else. Now, they don't know yet what that's going to be, but he apparently does know because he says that's the sign that's going to be given. Father, I think there's another layer to the sign of Jonah as well. Jonah is the only Old Testament prophet that is called by God to go to the Gentiles. Oh. All the other prophets were either to the northern kingdom of Israel or to the southern kingdom of Judah. Yeah. And as, uh, as a result, the reason why Jonah fled and was swallowed by the great fish <laughs> was because the Assyrians, with Nineveh as their capital, had been the ones that God had used to judge the people of the northern kingdom who had the law and knew who God was, but refused to obey or to give God glory for his appointment of them as his ambassadors. Right. And Jonah didn't want to go to preach <laughs> to people who had been the instrument of God's judgment on Israel. But the great contrast there is, uh, Jonah is, to me, is the stepping stone from the old covenant, one of the stepping stones to the new covenant, because of the fact that God is, the sign of Jonah is, Jesus is saying, when you see others coming into the kingdom other than yourselves, mm -hmm. you will know that God's, uh, the approval of God, the salvation of God comes by faith and not by lineage. Right. And so they will not only see the resurrection of Christ going into the earth and coming out alive mm -hmm. as the sign of Jonah, but when they see the others, which is the day of Pentecost, right. coming into the kingdom, that's a completion of the sign of Jonah to the Jewish leaders that God's plan of salvation is for all men. Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't thought, I've never really thought about that as significant, but it absolutely is. And then to see that when Jonah finally goes and preaches, having tried to escape, then the fish spits over on the beach, and he's back in Nineveh again. And okay, well, then he preaches, and he gets disappointed when they repent. <laughs> and then you know the whole thing with the plant, and the plant dies, and yeah, there, there's a lot to that. That's a beautiful story. And by the way, what is Peter's name when he's listed in in fullness? Simon. Simon. Simon what? Simon Peter. Yeah. Simon the Rock. <laughs> son of Jonah. Jonah. He's a son of Jonah. And this is a point that don't don't mistake what I'm about to say. Names in the Bible are always significant. It doesn't mean that the author necessarily made them up, but it means that if there's a name there, it's always going to be significant. So anytime we have a name, you can always say, all right, there's something in this, there's something here because names are important. People that have the same names, it's always significant. Why are there so many Marys? Is it a popular name? Possibly. Or is there something in common when you have this Mary and that Mary and another Mary? So it's just, it's something we know, not necessarily consciously when you're reading a story, because you're reading a story and you hear about Billy. And then it's, you know, two chapters later, 
and there's a different Billy, your brain knows there's a connection, consciously or not. And that's what, what authors understand this. So whether we know it or not, they're drawing connections for us that we don't even know sometimes that are there. So yeah, the names are always significant. Father. The fact. Yeah, go ahead, Susie. When, when Jesus reprimanded, in essence, the Pharisees and Sadducees and so on, and told them, look to Jonah, he must have known. And do you, do you conjecture that there's no way they were going to draw a parallel from that to him dying and resurrecting? And then I wonder, with the raising of Jairus's daughter and raising of Lazarus, <clears throat> Was that all to prepare everyone for the fact that you can believe Jesus will rise from the dead? You know what I mean? Was that really the express purpose, do you think, of those? I would, and I would base it more on Lazarus than the other ones. Um, Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus, and we'll, we'll, you'll hear a lot of it, obviously, on Lazarus Saturday, but that really is, in many ways, um, that's, that's the, the, the last straw. That's the, um, in a sense, it's the ultimate sort of like, you got to have to pick a side. So Jesus from here, he's already being very direct with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Here they are religious leaders. It's imagine, you know, um, a, a patriarch, patriarchal delegation comes and visits St. Nicholas. And there's, you know, our new metropolitan and the patriarch and who else. And you hear me get up and say, these evil and adulterous people that have come in our midst. <laughs> right? It's shocking. Right? It'd be absolutely shocking and, and horrifying for anybody watching this. That's, these are religious leaders who are the teachers of the law. That's all of, of Jewish faith was based on the law. And these are the teachers of the law. Um, so he's coming after them. But anyway, when we get to the raising of Lazarus, all of the things Jesus does is going to um, put them on a path of either going towards him, as some of them are going to do, right? We'll see Joseph Arimathea. We'll see Nicodemus. Um, but most of them are going to be pushed farther away. And then the raising of Lazarus is really where they say, we have to end him. Right. It's it's at Bethany, which is just down the road from Jerusalem. Um, the news spreads from Bethany, which is why when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the children are there and the palms, the branches and all that. Um, it really is going to be either we're going we're go, like we said before, you're going either going all in or you got to end him. And that's uh, but I think you're right also to say that it's it's not accidental that it's his defeating of death is what that final sort of option that he's going to give them is going to be. It's, it's, I don't think that's coincidental at all. All right, so let's keep going. So he tells them that. He says, no sign of the gift except the sign of Jonah, which you're right. So he, they, they could not have known. But what he's telling them is, that's your sign. Like, look for the sign of Jonah. And again, if they want to look for it and see it, they'll see it. And, and. The ironic thing is, how does what the sign of Jonah point to, how does that connect to the Pharisees? In other words, the sign of Jonah is Jesus' death and resurrection. How is that process connected to the Pharisees and Sadducees? 
only that it, it, it to me it's a little bit of a prophecy where Jesus is is using the sign of Jonah as yeah. a sign to them. So because they're in authority and because of what we know is going to happen and does happen, they are still gathering to try to dispel that this is the Messiah. And, you know, they have uh, guards at the, they, they have the Romans guarding the, the tomb. They have, they, they you know, they don't want to, what did they say? The, the second lie will be worse than the first if we let them get away with this. And so they're still, they're still, even after his death, still trying to disprove that he's the Messiah. So maybe he was giving them a prophecy of when all these things pass, think about Jonah. That's a sign again. And I don't know. Maybe that's a, maybe that's why. No, told I, think, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and I didn't thought about that, which is great. How does Jesus end up dying? Who, by whose direction? Jews. Well, you know, well, ultimately Pilate, right? Pilate's the one that has to, to sign the, the death warrant. Right. But who arrests him and, and takes him to Pilate? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sure. They're going to start that process. They're the ones that are going to, mm -hmm. to go and, you know, bribe Judas and go and arrest him and drag him to Pilate and drag him to Herod and all, but it's, they're the ones that are going to set that in motion. And Father so, Judas yeah. came back and tried to give the silver coins, the 30 silver coins back. Right. That, you know, that's an interesting thing that maybe we, I overlook. But that was another opportunity for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, whomever he approached. I can't remember sure. precisely, but and they said no blood money and, you oh, know, yeah. or whatever. They would have none of it. Um, right. He was trying to right a wrong and still maybe give them an opportunity to prevent the wrong they were about to commit. Yes. Yeah. He gives them every opportunity. Now, it's easy to not see that because he's very hard on them. Yeah. And I would say, I want to make this point, I'll make it now. A lot of people look at Jesus's treatment of the Pharisees and Sadducees and generalize it. And they say, look, he calling them even adulterous and he's publicly humiliating them. And he's, but that's not a, that's not something Jesus does to anyone else. Right. All right. Who are the Pharisees and Sadducees? They're the teachers of the law. They're the ones that are, in a sense, in God's employ to convey God's truth. And they more weren't doing it. And <laughs> they they're were... more accountable than anybody. Right. Because they were supposed to be leading them in that direction. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's important we don't look at what he does with them and say, well, that's how Jesus is with everyone. It's very specifically what he does to the teachers of the law. Now, he'll be direct with all kinds of people, but not nothing to the degree that he's going to come after the Pharisees, Sadducees. Which is really what leads us into this next section. So he says that about the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and departed. When the disciples reached other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So we already saw where Jesus sort of did a, a play on the whole sky and heavens now he's going to go into bread as a a symbol as a 
a way of, of examining a, a, a truth. And you're going to see with the disciples just like typical. And you can't blame them. It's like beware of the love of the third Sadducees. They, they hear love and they're thinking love, right? You can't blame them in one sense. But, you know, he's, he's going to keep trying to get them to see the deeper truth. So they hear leaven, and they say, oh, we brought no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? And then he goes into bread, right? And the two things he's going to talk about, the two feedings, the mass feedings we, we talked about. One was last week, I think, was it last week? Mm -hmm. um, and one a few weeks before that. And when he brings those up, why do you think he's bringing up those mass feedings? Why is he talking about, don't you remember the five loaves and the feet of the 5,000 and the seven of the 4,000? Why is he bringing that up? He's concerned about their faith. He's, he calls them, oh, you of little faith. You know, look what happened. You know, are you still on that level of just um, physical level? Yeah. Rather than just looking for bread. You always and you saw how we got bread twice, <laughs> right? So, you know, he's going to try to keep pulling them out of that of that surface level and pull them into the deeper understanding. Although I and all the baskets you gathered. What's that? I was going to say I can't help but think that how much we're like that, or at least I'm like that, where you know God will do things or show Himself to me during my life and. Later on, I don't know, I'll forget it. And, you know, I need to get back on track. You know, even though he already showed me the answer a long time ago, it's it's just, uh, I don't know, is this human nature? He, you know, God showed himself to the disciples two huge occasions, and yet they're still lacking in, in faith to, to yeah. understand. Yeah, and I think it's it's not accidental that, Rick, I don't think you're only one. We all see ourselves, and I think we should intentionally see ourselves in these disciples who, again, the mythology or our, our unexamined is, you know, they're just the ones we see in the icons, and they're always faithful, and they get it all the time, and they work a miracle. But that came through the process of Jesus having to say to them, oh, men of little faith. Don't you remember this? Don't you remember that? How is it that you fail to perceive that it did not speak about bread? So, yeah, we, we should see ourselves in, in the, the apostles. I was watching last night an interview with, there's a Catholic bishop, uh, Barron, I forget his first name, Robert Barron, maybe? Anyway, he's a popular YouTube guy. And Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus in The Chosen, they were, they're both Catholic. And it was some Catholic conference they were speaking at together. And they were talking about how one of the values of that, that show is that it really, you get to connect with the apostles on all kinds of levels because you see them living typical lives and how the, the fact they portray Matthew as somebody in the autism scale, that people that have various forms of that really never thought that, of course, there were people that had those same struggles and perspectives of course there are people we all should be able to find people that reflect us in there and i think that's that's it we know what the content of matthews we're talking about the content but in terms of the technique i think that that is the technique that we read and without even knowing it we see ourselves in these stories 
And hopefully we get carried along the same process the apostles are going to get carried along as they continue to encounter Jesus and fail and grow and fail and grow. So where did you see this uh, interview, Father? YouTube? I don't know. It popped up on YouTube. I was watching something else with Jonathan Peugeot. And then, <laughs> to be honest, I was dozing off. And then the next one started. Yeah, yeah. Then I stayed up for another hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pick up a coffee this if, yeah, if anybody hasn't seen The Chosen yet, it's amazing. Just yeah, the, and I wanted to watch it because I've had a, a suspicion that he is Middle Eastern. Jonathan, his last name is Rumi. Yeah. Right? Rumi is, is the Orthodox. Oh. And it came out when they asked him, where did you develop the accent? Yeah. And he said, my father is from Egypt. My aunt grew up in Palestine. Oh, he's wow. so he's my father's accent was very slight my aunt was very thick he goes through my head i blended those accents yeah. and that's the accent that he he uses speaking because jesus was middle eastern yeah but i just didn't want to do american <laughs> that didn't seem right american english he goes british that's been done but that's you know <laughs> jesus was from you know you know liverpool or london or someplace um so yeah, so he's got he's got an Orthodox background somewhere. Now he's Catholic. I don't know where, you know. But I was, I was curious about his last name. When he says "follow me," it's it's like I I think to myself, that's how Jesus would have said "follow me." I mean, the, that right. is perfect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's good. He told a, some interesting stories. Um, he he was an actor for like 20 years and just barely making it. You know, typical story. You're in Hollywood and you're waiting tables. And he did some show where he'd get, you know, a, a residual check every once in a while. What he got, he got down to his last $20. Yeah. And he says, I had turned my entire life over to God except my career. And he had his last 20 bucks and he got down on his knees and he, Said God, I, I'm going to put my entire life in your hands. He said, I went out and had a really good breakfast, like 40 bucks. <laughs> he came home and there were four checks in his mailbox. Yeah. So it's, it's nice that somebody with with faith, you know, is able to take that not just as an acting job, but as a as really is. And and he says, you know, they they asked him, what is it like to portray Jesus? He goes, I can't say the word humbling enough. He goes, that's the only word. And I just got to keep saying it over. It's just so humbling to, to be able to do that. That kind of reminds me of uh, Jim Caviezel, who did Jesus in um, Mel Gibson's show, The Passion of the Christ. He also right. is uh, practicing Catholic. Yeah. Yeah, and apparently they're working on a sequel, I understand. Uh, Mel Gibson is? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> all right so let's uh let's wrap up here so he says how is he failed to perceive that i did not speak about bread beware of the leaven of the pharisees and sadducees now does everybody understand what leaven is what do we call leaven yeast yeast so it's what you add to bread or to dough that makes it bread in other words without leaven you get a cracker you get you know that hard thin the leaven makes it rise so it's really what you get add something that really is going to change what you end up with. It what make it's what makes bread bread, and not just something flat or hard. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
And that's such a crucial idea that it's their teaching. That's the problem. It's not just that they're hypocrites. It's he calls them hypocrites, but the really deepest part of their problem is it's their teaching. They are not teaching, according to Jesus, God's truth. And so when he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, let's go back up. It's still fresh. What's the leaven? Go back up to the first part. Go back up to one through four. And what's their leaven? What is it that they are injecting into what he is saying is the leaven that becomes the bread of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Action. What is it? It's later. Oh, it's later. Yeah. One through four. I think it's that he's saying uh, they are not taking the truth of what God has already revealed through Moses and the law and expounding on that for your benefit. They are also saying that's not enough. We need a miracle, a sign. We need to add something in order to convince us of the validity and the authority by which you're doing these things and teaching, et cetera. And that is leaven, because if the Pharisees and the Sadducees demand a sign, what do you think the average person would like to see? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think he's saying uh, faith in God is not going to come as a result of your physical sight. What is the old thing they used to say, Father? Seeing is believing, yeah. <laughs> but you turn that the other way. Believing is seeing. Exactly where you, you need to have faith in order to see and understand what the truth of something is. Yeah, and by calling them an evil and adulterous generation, he's really saying, think about adultery. It's you're being with another. So the leaven they're bringing in is not the leaven of the revelation of God. It's something, someone else. It's not God. So if you have different kinds of leavens, you're going to get different kinds of bread. And so the leaven of God that they could have had by looking for a sign, which he says is evil and adulterous, because that's what seeking for a sign is, uh, they're going to get something other than what would be the leaven of God, therefore the bread of God. When he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, it's their teaching, and the leaven is going to determine what happens. So you don't have leaven that gives you good bread. You're not going to have, you're not going to have good bread. You'll have something else. But it's, it's the teaching that really is, is critical because, again, the, 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 the Bible is instruction. It's not just history. It's not just philosophy. It's teaching for instruction. I've got a few minutes here. Let's, I'm going to do a couple, couple quotes. Um, the, the first is from St. John Chrysostom talking about when they came to test him. Uh, he says, their inquiry, inquiry was rightly deserving of anger and great displeasure. Yet the benevolent and provident one is not angry. He pities them even as they tempt him. He laments them as incurably diseased after so full a demonstration of his power. They did not seek him out in order to believe, but to lay hold of him. Had they come with any readiness to believe, he would have given such a sign. For he said, for he who said to the woman, it is not fair, that whole is not fair to give, you know, from the children's give to the dogs. And afterwards gave, much more would he have shown his bounty to these officials. But they did not seek to believe. He therefore calls them hypocrites, because in another place they said one thing and meant another. If they had believed, they would not even have asked. It is evident they did not believe, since when 
reproved and exposed, they did not remain with him, nor did they admit we are ignorant and seek to learn. Are we done? No. This is another uh, from St. John Christopher about when the disciples thinking, well, we don't have any bread. Why did he not say plainly? Because of their teaching. His purpose is rather to remind them of what had just been done, defeating the multitude, for he knew they had already forgotten its significance. But Christ did not immediately admonish them. Rather, he took their own thoughtlessness as the occasion for reproof. Remember that he had not reproved them when they had said earlier, where are we to get bread enough in the desert to feed so great a crowd? It seemed better now to say to them what he says here. He did not want to rush hastily on to another miracle. He did not admonish them before the multitude, nor did he seek to elevate himself in their eyes. He might have been much, much harsher with them after their forgetfulness following the miracle of the loaves. All these considerations gave his reproof a greater meaning. So St. John is there showing us that he's, he's, he's got a different technique with the disciples than with the Pharisees and Sadducees because they at least are trying. They're at least trying to believe, trying to learn, as, as inept as they are from time to time. At least they're trying. Any concluding thoughts or questions? just reminds me also when the Pharisees uh, confronted Jesus, I believe near the end of his ministry, when, he, when they said to him, by what authority do you say these things? And then he asked them, by what authority did John the Baptist? And they couldn't come up with an answer because they were afraid if they, of the crowds. And so again, they even up to the end, they, they still challenged him not out of faith, but out of envy and malice. Right. Yeah, in fact, it's interesting because both the Pharisees and Sadducees and the crowds are going to recognize that he is, as, as the scripture says, teaching with authority. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees, you're pointing out, Charlie, they're going to be jealous because they're the authorities, right? They're the authorities on the law. They're the ones that are supposed to be the teachers of the law. But he's teaching with authority, meaning he's taking their job, and they're not happy about that. The crowds are going to see it from the opposite perspective, for, for the positive one. Like, he's not just saying, read this, read this, read this. He is. He refers to the scriptures all the time. But he's teaching from the position, not of just a teacher of the law, but really as a giver of the law. And, you know, we've talked about him, Matthew being the new law. The Sermon on the Mount, going up the mountain, coming down with the law. So, yeah, that authority, you can see how everything Jesus does is not going to be automatically easy to take, nor is it, excuse when automatically it's rejected. It's put, it's put in front of you, and then we, everybody who encounters it, you get to decide what you're going to do with it. And in, in Matthew, the religious leaders are offended by it because he's teaching authority. The crowds are inspired because he's teaching with authority. It's, it's the same thing. We just pick two different things with it or two different uh, uh, results that come out of the same thing. Are there Pharisees and Sadducees still in the Jewish faith or tradition? No. Um, I was referred to a very good book 
that I, I actually have the book, but I haven't read it yet. Um, it's on my growing pile of books I'm going to read from, from May to August. Um, it's called The Religion of the Apostles. And it's uh, by Stephen DeYoung, who is a very popular author and podcaster on ancient faith. And what the person that read it talked to me about was it not only does it talk about what the religion of Christianity was from the beginning of the apostles, but he talks about the religious environment at that same time. And what apparently Father Stephen lays out in a pretty clear way is that there was no Judaism as a sort of monolithic faith at the time. The fact that you have Pharisees and Sadducees is one example of how there were multiple ways of understanding the law. Now, one of the main differences, and I forget if this comes out of Matthew or not, it comes out in, in the gospel somewhere. It, it's, it's so different that the Pharisees believe in a resurrection from the dead, but the Sadducees don't. I mean, that's a pretty fundamental teaching, and here they are both part of what we think of as one religion. Um, Father Stephen apparently lays out that that's really not accurate, is our understanding, um, that there really were multiple ways of, of different groups and different parties that they would interpret the Old Testament in very different ways. So I could recommend that book, not that I've read it, but I, I've heard it's it's a good summary. In fact, I was, I've was i been looking for a book to recommend to, we, we get a growing number of people that come to St. Nicholas, they're looking for orthodoxy, and in the past, they typically came mostly out of Protestant traditions, once in a while out of a Catholic, the, the Catholic tradition, but they had some Christian background. More and more of the folks that are showing up have no Christian background. They didn't grow up going to church. They weren't baptized. Right. So, you know, we have Orthodoxy 101, which we talk about in many ways, how Orthodoxy is unique from the other versions of Christianity people have encountered. Now we say we, we need Orthodoxy 99. It's like, you know, what's Christianity? You know, who's Adam and Eve? Who's Jonah? Who's Moses? Who's King David? Um, and then leading into who's Jesus? Who are the disciples? Because more and more folks didn't have, don't have that background. So we've got to like get them ready to say, okay, well, what is orthodoxy? Well, in what in in some ways, the things that we assume they know from a general knowledge of Christianity, that's not there. So we're hoping that this book might fulfill that need. But we'll see. I'll, I'll hopefully read it in the next few months. So, Father, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was I understood that the Sadducees were um, like the head heads of um the temple and the pharisees were like the the leaders of um like the outlying churches or whatever they call them and so when the temple went away so did the sadducees because the temple temple was destroyed but the pharisees yeah. were still around because so yeah and in some ways that's true but when jerusalem was destroyed by the romans 70 a.d everything that was judaism at that point does change because the temple is so central to it yes they had the synagogue but the temple is just as central and important even if it wasn't as frequently visited as the synagogue 
it was essential. So when that goes out, you're right that the Sadducees, who I, I think too, I've heard things like they were more the liturgists of the Jews. The Pharisees were more the teachers of the Jews. There's different understandings of it. But it's really not just the Sadducees that end. Everything that we know of as Judaism changes. And I remember reading a book in seminary, uh, sort of about, I was up to say a second ago. It's called Jew and Greek. And if you want to read it, it's a short book. Um, but it really talks about how in the first century, yes, we have uh, the rise of Christianity, the birth of Christianity. But in many ways, it was also the birth of what we now know of as Judaism, which is different than the Judaism of Jesus' day, which was different than the Judaism early on in their history, before the exile and other times. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how in some ways that uh, we can say it's from our perspective, uh, I'm sure some Jews will be offended. In some ways, we have a more ancient connection to the Judaism of the Old Testament than a modern uh, pious Jew would have because of so much that changed in, in Judaism before, during, and after the time of Christ. Yeah, I mean, you know, with the Septuagint and all that kind of stuff, they don't, they don't have those books in their current um, Hebrew Bible is what I understand. Right. And from our perspective, the sacrificial tradition of the Old Testament is fulfilled and continues in Orthodoxy. Right. We talk about the offering of the bloodless sacrifice. We have an altar upon which we offer our gifts, which are symbolic of the Lamb. When we, when the, the priest picks up the, what we might call the bread or Catholics call the host, we call that the lamb. So in many ways, we have that continuity that modern Judaism does not have. Now, there's a lot that we aren't necessarily familiar with that is part of traditions that are, that are part of those Jewish traditions. So uh, there are a lot that we don't have, but I would say that what everything that they have, we have fulfilled in Christ and continuing. So we didn't we didn't miss anything, but there are some things that we don't have that are still specifically Jewish that weren't in their view fulfilled. All right, we'll cut it off here and God willing, we'll see you all next week together. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Thank you Father. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye everyone. Bye. Bye everyone.